We've been going through the book of Titus. One question I always have as a pastor, and I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question or not, is how did the early church turn their world upside down? How was it they, they experienced such explosive growth and became such a force for good in, in, the, uh, in the years that they lived? Because despite all the challenges that they faced, the Jesus movement grew from about 1,000 believers in 40 A.D. to over 35 million by the middle of the 4th century. That's explosive. That's a growth rate of over 40% every 10 years. How did they do it? Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have the World Wide Web. They had, didn't have uh, uh, massive uh, PA systems. They didn't have radio broadcasts or TV broadcasts. How was it this small group of people became so influential in their world? Well, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, sociologist Rodney Stark came to four conclusions. Now, Rodney Stark, let's, let, let me tell you, he, he's not a Christian, so he wasn't trying to spin this thing to make Christianity look good. This is really what he found. He is a self-proclaimed agnostic. But he, he came to four reasons, which, of course, excluded the supernatural power of God and the sovereignty of God. He didn't want to consider that. He was just talking about the, the human element that caused the church to expand so quickly. He said the early church leveraged their social networks to expand the influence of the kingdom. He said that most were led to Christ by a friend or a family member who simply shared the gospel with them and then lived the gospel in front of them. Personal relationships made all the difference. You know what? Today's research says it still does. Christianity is, is expanded through our personal networks more than through mass conversion events. The second thing he talked about is he said the early church cared for suffering and marginalized people. They cared for suffering people. Back in the days of the early church, when a natural or man-made calamity hit their community, like a plague or an earthquake, most people would run for safety. They would run away to get away from the calamity. But Christians instead would stay to take care of the suffering people in their community, doing simple things like offering people water and food and shelter and sometimes just comfort as they lay there dying. Over time, it was these simple acts of kindness that won many to Christ, humanity. The third reason is he said they took stands against adultery, abortion, and infanticide. Things haven't changed very much, have they? In the ancient Roman world, uh, women and children didn't have it so well. Sexual immorality was rampant, and the babies produced were often aborted, killed, or simply left to die, especially female babies. Well, Christians spoke out against all of this immorality, and all of these immoral practices, and they urged their followers uh, to remain faithful in marriage, to see that all human life was sacred, and I encourage you to do that as well. That's what we preach from here, and I hope you believe that. And in their day, Christians would rescue those abandoned babies and raise them as their own so they grew up to be Christians who recognized that they were created in the image of God. The fourth reason Stark gives us is because they, those, the early church practiced a theology of love. The early church took seriously their responsibility to love God and love their neighbors, and this theology of love translated into an ethic of love. Of love. These first Christians not only preached love, 
but they practiced love. And that made all the difference in the community around them. Look, the reason I'm running through this, I'm not trying to make this an academic exercise. I'm not trying to encourage you to read the book. What I am trying to get you to see is that research like this makes a really powerful point for churches like ours. It's a point that we really need to get today. God uses the ordinary, everyday Christians to expand the influence of His kingdom. God uses people like you and me, average believers, who will live godly lives and do good deeds. He will use us and the good that we do to bring glory and honor to His name and expand the influence of the kingdom. It's the ordinary people like you and me that will enhance the reputation of the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. We keep waiting for somebody else to do it. We keep waiting for some kind of supernatural, miraculous thing to go on. No, God's waiting for us to do what we've been called to do in order to make a difference in the world. And this is exactly what Jesus means when He says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who was in heaven. Do you, do you hear that personal call? This is to each one of us. He's not saying wait on somebody else to get out there and do it. He's saying you get out there and do it. So, we've been, as a church, going through the book of Titus to figure out how do we get this done? How do we, how do we create a church environment, a church culture that creates disciples who understand the importance of letting their light shine? Going out there and doing good so that God gets the glory for it and the kingdom of God advances. That's my desire for CLF. Is it your desire too? I certainly hope it is. I want us to have the same impact on our generation today, in our community today, that the early church had back in their day, in their communities. I want to turn Calera, Alabama right side up for the glory of God. And if we're waiting for God to do some kind of supernatural, He may or may not do that. I wish He would, but he may, you know who He's calling to do it? You and me. You and me. He's going to use us to flip this world right side up again. I'm all in. Are you? All right. We've been looking at this little letter that Paul wrote to Titus in the New Testament for answers to how we can build a church culture that raises up disciples who know how and who want to let their light shine for the glory of God. If you remember, Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete to put the churches there in good order. It was a mess. So Paul sent Titus to Crete to put churches in good order. And the letter to Titus tells us what we need to do as a church to produce disciples who are zealous to do good works for the glory of God. So it's a great letter to turn to when we're trying to figure out how to get this done. So far we've seen a few things. We've seen, and I, I wish you'd go back and get the podcast and listen to it at if you haven't heard the messages, so far we've seen our need for biblical preaching. We've seen our need for godly leadership. We've seen our need for practical teaching. Last week we learned that God's grace must energize all that we do if we're going to be effective. Well, today we're going to be talking about readiness. Readiness. How to be ready to do the good works that God has created in advance for us to do. 
All right. We need to be ready. Amen? There's nothing like, nothing to create that creates regrets like an opportunity lost. I don't want to lose any more opportunities to bring glory to God. I want to be ready. I want to stand on ready. I want my eyes and ears to be open to the opportunities God gives me to bring glory and honor to His name through my good works. All right, let's go to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus, uh, Paul writes to Titus and says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Is that like looking in a mirror? Okay. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Say that with me. He saved us. Say it again. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray and let's find out how we can be ready to do the good works that God gives us to do. Lord, I love You so much and I thank You for a church that stands on ready. A church, Lord, that is ready to be everything you have called us to be. I pray today as we spend time in your word that you would enhance that attitude of readiness. Lord, that you would help us to understand the importance of our participation in the expansion of your kingdom, that we wouldn't wait for someone else and we wouldn't wait for you, but God, you've already done all that you can do and all that you want to do, all that you will do. It's already been done. Now you wait for us to jump in and participate, to become co-workers, co-partners in this ministry, to expand the influence of your kingdom. You want I can't even imagine why you'd want somebody like me involved. It doesn't even make sense to me. But that's exactly what you're saying. You want us in our weakness, our frailties, our inability. You're calling us. You're calling us to be ready to do the good works that you have created in advance for us to do. Oh, Father, let this be more than a nudge in that direction. Let this be a push from your Holy Spirit into action. We love you, Jesus. We give glory and honor to your name. Be glorified in this church and through this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Readiness is an attitude. Readiness is an attitude. It's a state of mind. It, 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 readiness is that which makes us quick to respond to the needs of people around us. It predisposes us to act to meet that need and not just pass it by. Readiness has to do with the willingness and availability to respond when given the opportunity to share the love of Christ with another person. You and I have been called to be ready, and we see it here in verse uh, five, uh, verse uh, 1 here of chapter 3, God issues a call to us as His people to be ready 
for every good work. And he, 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 uh, he pinpoints, he specifies two particular areas of responsibility that help provide a launching pad for us to be ready to do those good works. First of all, he says, you make yourself ready by being a good citizen, and you also make yourself ready by being a good neighbor. Now follow me here. We are to be good citizens. You do realize it's hard to let your light shine for God like when you're in handcuffs in the back of a police car. Somehow that gets to be a little awkward, you know. We, we provide a platform for good works, for our good works, if we are good citizens. Verse 1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. We hear a lot about civil disobedience, but what Paul is talking about here is civil obedience. Romans 13.1, we get the same instruction. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from where? God. 1 Peter 2.13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Now you got to remember the context. These folks were being persecuted for their faith. They were being hounded. They were being, uh, uh, their homes were being taken from them. They were being thrown in jail for serving the Lord. And here Paul is saying, submit. Submit. Be obedient. Now that, listen, this doesn't mean blind submission. Let's, I, don't, I don't want anybody to think that we're called to be uh, blindly obedient to the government uh, and everything that the government might do. No, our ultimate allegiance is to God and His kingdom. But what Paul is saying here, what, what it does mean here is that we recognize that those in authority have been placed over us by God. They're there for our protection. They're there to hold back evil. There are all sorts of reasons the Bible gives us for, for God raising up authority. But those, those, those people in authority have been placed there by God. And he, listen, this is what He expects from us. He expects... His followers, he's, he expects his sons and daughters to treat those authorities with the honor and the dignity that their positions deserve. Sometimes you don't honor the man necessarily, but you do honor the position. We are to be good citizens, conducting ourselves obediently and honorably and respectfully. This, 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 this provides a platform for us to do good works as a good citizen, but also as a good neighbor. We're to be ready for every good work by being good neighbors to those with whom we love and live and work and play. We're to be good neighbors to those we meet at the park or the schools or the stores or those we tip this afternoon when we go to eat lunch. Come on, Christians, be good tippers. And all those in the food service industry said, yes and amen. Listen, nothing, I, I, nothing, to me, is more unattractive than a quarrelsome person who self-identifies as a Christian. Nothing is more unattractive to me than somebody wearing a Christian t-shirt that acts like a porcupine. All prickly, bristly. Nothing's more unattractive than that. Nothing's uglier. I mean, they're grouchy. They're whiny. They're complaining all the time. They're negative. They're focused always, they're focused always on the, on the negative, not the positive, and they're always looking for an offense. Always looking to be offended by somebody for something. Who wants to be around somebody like that? But on the other hand, on the other hand, there's nothing more attractive 
than a courteous Christian. A Christian that's wearing that t-shirt and then backing it up by the things they say and the way they live. They're pleasant. They're self-controlled. They overlook offenses. They focus on the positive, not the negative. Those are the people you want to be around. Come on, right? Romans 12, 18 says this. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, sometimes you know it doesn't depend on you, but as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor. It sets you up to serve people in the name of the Lord when the opportunity comes your way. You'll be the one they're going to turn to when they find themselves in need. Does that make sense? The reason so many people won't walk in the doors of a church is because every Christian they know is like a porcupine, all bristly, and, and they're afraid of what they're going to find when they step inside the church doors. Well, God forbid they think about Christian Life Fellowship that way. Let me, let me share with you the story of how Celebrate Recovery, or our recovery ministry, got started to illustrate what I'm talking about. You may have heard this story before, and if you did, I, I apologize. I'm not trying to bore you with it. But back when we started the church over 16 years ago, I knew, I knew nothing about recovery. I just knew that God had placed in my heart to be a church that reached out to, the, to people that fell through the cracks that were marginalized by the culture they were in, and addicts always seemed to me to be among that group of people. Falling through the cracks, everybody else gives up on them. Well, I wanted to be the church that reached out to them, didn't give up on them. Is that Okay. I didn't even know how to go about it. I had no idea. I just know that's what the Lord had put in my heart to do. One of the earliest attenders here when we started in October of 2002 was a lady named Lisa Greathouse. Lisa Greathouse, you may may remember her, was uh, a a lady who who was all herself in recovery, and she uh, she had a desire to help people overcome their addictions. Lisa, because of her background, as an addict, but also as a nurse, became part of the Shelby County Drug Court program. And I became a good friend with Lisa. She became a good friend with my family. And she, uh, that was, she was my introduction, if you will, to the recovery community and the principles of uh, the 12 steps and those kinds of things. She also helped me get involved with Shelby County Drug Court. Their, Shelby County Drug Court was just getting off the ground. Uh, they made me their chaplain, I think just because they liked having me around a little bit. So Lisa and I would sit uh, in the Shelby County Drug Court meetings and contribute a little bit as people, uh, as they tried to help people overcome their addictions. Well, one day there was, uh, the, the drug court administrator, Luke, called Lisa and said that he wanted to do an intervention with a young lady that had attended our church a little bit named Jessica. Jessica had relapsed, and he was trying to get Jessica in a rehab. So Luke asked if Lisa and I would sit in with Jessica and himself as he talked to her about that. So we met over at Calera Library, went through the intervention process. We finally convinced Jessica that she needed to go to rehab. We made arrangements for that to happen. Then at the end of the meeting, as Lisa took Jessica out of the room, Luke looked across the table at me, and he said, are you going to start a celebrate recovery, or are you going to start a recovery program? And I said, yeah, we have plans to. He looked at me, shook his head. He said, are you going to start a recovery program? And I said, 
yes, we will start a recovery program. He said, how much time do you need? Two weeks. Good, two weeks. Later I found out that there was a large megachurch in this area that had been talking about a recovery program for over a year, but they were still in committee, making no progress. And Shelby County Drug Court just wanted a partner. And so this little bitty church in Calera that had just gotten off, uh, gotten off the ground six months earlier now found itself running a recovery program that even the megachurches were afraid of. That's how our program got started. The opportunity was there. <laughs> you should have seen us. Oh, my God. Anyway, memory's flooding back now. <laughs> memory's flooding back now about people looking at, what we're doing what? How are we got you got any experience with that? Not a lick, man. I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, it's been quite a ride. But, and I'm saying that not to, I'm just saying that's what it looks like to see an opportunity. Lisa had once been a prisoner, but now she was in good standing with the legal community. Get it? And I'm just a good citizen trying to be a good neighbor. And when the opportunity presented itself, we jumped in. I mean, head first. Okay, come on. Thank you. Thank you. Because that's my point. This bozo didn't know a thing about it. We jumped in headfirst into the recovery program using what little knowledge we had, but seizing the opportunity. And from that, from that moment when we decided to let our light shine in this particular area, it passed on to Cindy and others. Thousands of people have come through those doors and experienced hope and help and many of them, their lives have been changed because in that moment, we seize the opportunity. As good citizens and as good neighbors, we've had other recovery programs come here and they learned from us and then went back to their communities. Clanton, Red Bay, Alabama, of all places. Y'all don't even know where Red Bay is. And other places, they've come here to see what it, is, what it looks like for a church to... to, to intentionally reach out to people in recovery. MSP. MSP, man. You guys wouldn't be here if it weren't for that moment. You hear what I'm saying? That you never know what might come out of you seizing the opportunity as a good neighbor and a good citizen to help somebody in, uh, understand the kingdom, loving other people. You don't... You know, I think sometimes we forget what a ripple effect, we know all about the ripple effects of sin, don't we? We do something never realizing the harm it's going to do to others. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of a good deed done in the name of the Lord to transform communities. Take the opportunity, seize it when it comes as a good neighbor, as a good citizen. It sets you up to do something good something grand, something glorious in the name of the Lord. All right, so we're called, we're called to be ready for every good work. 
It starts by being good citizens and by being good neighbors. But we, we have to be aware, guys. We have to go into this with our eyes wide open that we're going to face threats to readiness. There will be some threats that we have to overcome in order to keep ourselves ready. We're going to have to fight some attitudes that undermine our readiness to do good to those around us. And one such, one such threat to readiness is ignorance. Ignorance. Sometimes we simply may not know about the needs and opportunities around us, and sometimes we may see the needs, but we just don't know what to do about them. For example, I, when, I, when I was writing this message, I couldn't help but think about a conversation I had with a pastor, and another pastor of another church in this community, and he's since gone on, so don't be trying to figure out who it is. When he found out that we had started a recovery program, he looked at me and he said, man, that's great. He said, I'm so glad my church doesn't need it. What he didn't know is that two of his members were attending our recovery program. Ignorant, just ignorant. He wasn't aware of the need. He wasn't aware of it at all. Another threat to readiness is fear. Who's on our side? The Lord? Who have we got to fear? Anyway. We may recognize the needs around us, but for whatever reason, we're afraid of stepping out to meet them. Maybe, maybe we're afraid of what it might cost us, or maybe we're afraid of being rejected or misunderstood, but for whatever the, whatever the reason is, we're, we're afraid. We're simply afraid to do what we know we ought to do. Which reminded me, as I was writing this message, of what some other pastors had told me. At what, before planting the church, I had to go through what they called church planters boot camp. And, they, and, and, and these, these pastors who were teaching the sessions, one of them asked me in class, what do you intend to do to make your church known in the community? And I told him, we will intentionally reach out to the most broken in our community. We're going to reach out to those people that fall through the cracks or get ignored by other churches. We're going to, make, we're going to intentionally focus. I, 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 trust me, I want everybody to walk in those doors. Everybody. But I want to be sure that our church is graciously embracing them when they walk in, no matter what their struggle is. And he looked at me, middle of class, about 20 of us in that room. He said, oh, no, you can't do that. And I, I looked at him, you know, like, what? what? I said, why? He said, because when those kind of people come in, they're going to swamp you. They will, they'll, they'll consume all your resources. It will wear you out. Well, that's just fear, isn't it? It's going to cost you too much to do that. You're going to ruin your reputation in that community. Matter of fact, we've been called the crackhead church, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I embrace it. It's okay. All the good people in, in, in the room are going, oh, my God, where, why, why am I here? But anyway, <laughs> we've been called worse than that, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Fear is not going to keep me from doing something the Lord has called me to do. It's not. And I, it should not keep any of you from it. What have we got to be afraid of? 
Step out in faith and see what God will do. See how far these ripple effects can go. See how many people can be, can be influenced by the goodness and the grace of God. Man, don't, don't let fear keep you from being what God has called you to be. But there's another threat. We've talked about ignorance, talked about fear. There's also the threat of contempt. Contempt will keep you from being ready to help people when the opportunity arises. Contempt, contempt flows out of feelings of superiority and pride. Contempt kills a person's desire to do good for someone else. You won't serve somebody else if you feel contempt for them. Instead, you're going to turn away from them or you'll tell yourself, oh, they deserve what they get anyway. Contempt. Which reminds me of another story I was told. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> these stories kept flooding back as I went through this message. A friend of mine who lives in the state of Washington went to dinner with his pastor and his pastor's wife. And my friend was telling his pastor and his wife what we were doing down here, how we were reaching out and started a recovery program and we're bringing a lot of folks in who were struggling with addiction into our church. And the pastor's wife looked at my friend and said, why would you want those kinds of people in your church? Do you sense the contempt? Why would you want those kind of people in your church? Look, let that never be said of us. I don't care what your struggle is. I'm never going to look down my nose at you. And I pray to God you'll never look down your nose at anyone else. I want you to watch how verse 3 speaks to these threats to our readiness. How, how verse 3 speaks to these threats that might keep us from jumping in and seizing those opportunities when they come our way. Especially the threat of contempt. Because I'm afraid that many of our Christian brothers and sisters, and I love them, and they're going to heaven. I'm not, I'm not judging them in that way at all. I am saying it's, it's preventing them from doing good in their community because they're looking down at people and seeing them through worldly eyes instead of seeing them as Christ would see them. Anyway, watch, watch how verse 3 speaks to these threats to readiness when it says, For we ourselves, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see what verse 3 reminds us? It reminds us of who we once were, but for the grace of God. It reminds us that we used to, to be in that same stinking pit of sin and selfishness, but God came to our rescue. It's like God is saying to us, if you want to be a good citizen, if you want to be a good neighbor, if you want to be a force for good in your community, if you want your light to shine for my glory, then never forget where you came from. Never forget where you came from. Never forget, God says, the pit I raised you out of. Some of us have only been raised in that pit for a very little while. But I'm telling you, the further you get away from it, sometimes the more you fail to remember how good God has been to you to get you out of that pit in the first place. So rather than looking with contempt on the sin and the foolishness of the world around us, we ought to let it serve as a reminder of who we once were, except for Christ. 
And let me tell you something, this ought to make us drive deeper and deeper into the grace of God rather than further and further into feelings of contempt and self-righteousness. If you're not more grateful today for the grace of God in your life than you were yesterday, you don't see grace for what it really is. Again, I just don't think there's anything uglier than a smug, self-righteous Christian. I just don't know what's uglier than somebody that claims to be a son or daughter of God but acts like an idiot. And I'm telling you, nothing crushes a smug, self-righteous attitude quicker than taking an honest look at the life of Jesus Christ. If anyone, if anyone had the right to feel smug and self-righteous, it was Jesus Christ, the perfect man. But he never looked at anyone with contempt. Never. Matthew 9, well, almost never. Matthew 9.36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had, say it with me, compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had what? Compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32 says, when Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have what? Compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling, he goes on to say, to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Look, man, nothing is more clear when you read the Gospels than this. Jesus looked at people with compassion, not content. Compassion, not contempt, unless, unless they were smug and self-righteous. Then you know what he had to say about them? Nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're a brood of vipers. I think contempt met contempt right there. Listen, CLF, let's keep an eye out for anything. Let's keep an eye out for anything that might threaten our readiness to do good. Let's refuse to be ignorant about the needs of the people around us. Let's refuse to allow fear to keep us from bringing glory to God through our good works. And let's follow the example of Christ. And let's see people through eyes of compassion rather than contempt. All right? Let, let that be our hallmark. If I'm going to make a mistake, I'd rather err on the side of grace. Hear me? Which brings me to the reason why we're here and why we have been made ready to do good works. Because God saved us to make us ready. If you think God saved you so you could keep your fat little, excuse me, rear ends stuck on a... and do nothing, you have completely missed the point. God saved you to make you ready to do the good works that he created in advance for you to do. To sit and do nothing stop. This, is, this really is one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation in the Bible. It, it, it's, it's a compact summary of the salvation we've been given through Christ Jesus. And it, it would do you well to take this little summary home, these four, four verses, read them through and 
Think carefully about what it means. Meditate on the truth and the power of it. But we're not going to do that here because it would take too long. But I'm going to unpack these four verses for you to help you see how our salvation connects to us being ready to do good works for the glory of God. In verse 5, it's, it, it just says these, these three little words, He saved us. He saved us. Say that with me again. He saved us. He saved us. This is the core of our Christian faith. He saved us. It's all about God saving sinners like you and me. He saved us from the penalty and the power of sin. He saved us from judgment and eternal punishment. But He also saved us to some things. He saved us to bless us. He saved us to bring us into His family. He saved us so that we can enjoy Him. He saved us to inherit eternal life. God saved us. It's totally the work of God from start to finish. We have nothing to do with it but get out of His way. He saved us. If that doesn't charge your spiritual battery, then you don't belong here. He saved us. He saved us. Our salvation originates in the heart and the mind of God. He planned it. He planned it. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. God's goodness and loving kindness sent His Son to that cross to pay the penalty for our sins. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Get this through your head. We didn't reach out to God. He reached out to us. He reached out to us. Our salvation is rooted in His character, His goodness, His loving kindness. Ain't nothing in us good. He reached out to us. We did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. We did nothing to deserve our salvation. Verse 5 points it out. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. <laughs> Y'all hear me when I say this. And I'm not trying to put you down. I'm included here with you, okay? God didn't send His Son to die in our place because we were so lovable, He couldn't live without us. I know that's the way the gospel is presented to some people. God loves you so much because you're such a wonderful person. No, 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 no. You're a horrible person and God loves you anyway. Can I get an amen, John? Thank you, John. If I've never said anything more true than that, there you have it. You're a horrible person. I am a terrible person. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm capable of. But God loves me anyway. He saves me. I can't believe it. I still walk around every day and wonder, why? 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 Me? I don't know. I wouldn't save me. 
I would throw me in a prison and lock the, you know, throw away the key. That's what I would do with me. Anyway, back, back, back. No, God didn't save you because you were so lovable he couldn't live without you. He saved you in spite of how unlovable you really are. Which is exactly what Romans 5.8 says when it says, but God shows his love for us in this while we were still sinners. While we were still in our rebellion. While we were still shaking our fists in his face saying, come get me. Oh, he could have. But instead, he reached down to save us. Because that's who he is. Listen, we're saved by God's mercy, not our merit. Get that out of your head right now. You've done nothing to deserve his grace, his favor, his love, his mercy. Nothing. He saved us by his mercy, not our merit. He saved us by Christ dying, not our doing. He made you a new person. He made you a new person. I should be getting big amens from you people out here when I say this now. That's what verses 5 and 6 has to say. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, you were born again, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Your new birth, your new life comes from God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's get this right now. Any good that's in you, it's from him. It ain't from you. Your new way of seeing life, it's not you just turned over a new leaf. Oh, no, he gave you a whole new way of seeing life because he put in you the mind of Christ. Let's get this straight, guys. You ain't nothing without him. You're lost, you're undone, you're confused, you're destined for hell, but because he saved us, you got a new life. And you've taken on a new identity. I love what verse 7 has to say. God gives us a new identity so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that word justified has to do with your legal standing before God. You once were a rebel and sinner condemned to die and spend eternity in hell. But God saved you. And now when he looks at you, He's just, you're justified by the blood of Christ. It's just as if you'd never sinned. And now he looks at you and he says, no, you're righteous and you're a saint. No charge in your account. Isn't it, oh, come on, y'all that have been before, before a judge and you're afraid of the hammer falling. You know it's about to come. And then all of a sudden, looks like somebody's paid restitution for you. You're free to go. It's happened, hasn't it? Thank you. What an amazing feeling. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened when you trusted Christ Jesus as your Savior. All that had, that had piled up against you, all the penalty, all the shame, as if it never happened. New identity. You're a saint, not a sinner. We just got to grow up into that new identity and start living it out, don't we? Anyway, the word heirs, the word heirs has to do with your personal standing with God. Legally, you're justified. Personally, your identity changes as well. 
The Bible says before you trusted Christ, (laughs) you were a slave to sin and a child of darkness. But your personal standing, because he saved you, has now changed completely. (laughs) You're not any longer a slave to sin. No, you're a son and a daughter of God now. Adopted into his family with all the rights attributed to, I'm telling you guys, there should have been a louder amen right there. You need to go home and meditate on it because you don't quite get it yet. When you figure out what God has done for you, you'll be shouting like nobody's business next Sunday. Everything changed. Everything changed because he saved you. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? So we are. So we are. Let's get this straight, y'all. Any blessing you now enjoy, any blessing you now enjoy as a child of God is a gift of grace. Not because you deserved it or earned it, but because God is good and he's gracious to you. So why do we hold on so tightly to the things that we have been given so freely? You hear me? We've been forgiven freely, but I'm not going to forgive you. (laughs) He speaks blessings over my life, but I'm not going to bless you. You see how silly it is? He pulled me out of the pit and set my feet on solid ground to stand. But I'm not about to help you, brother. You just stay where you are, because you're getting what you deserve. See how silly it seems? Enough. No, no, no. Enough. What we have been given freely, let's give to others freely. That's what it is, to be ready to do good works that bring God glory. It's just to recognize, I am nothing without him, but I can do all things through him. And I can bless you. (laughs) Peter, I I don't know why this came to me. I'm going to go ahead and say it, and I'm going to try to finish up. Peter and John are going to the temple like they do every day to worship the Lord. There's a lame man. There's a lame man lying by the gate, beautiful, who has been there every time they have gone that way. What happened this particular day, we don't know. The beggar did what he did every day. He called out to them for alms. He said, give me some gold, give me some silver, give me something so I can buy some bread today to eat. Peter and John stopped and they looked at him and then they said to him, you know the story, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, we'll give it to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Do you know we have the power to say the same thing to people that are struggling in their addictions and sins? who are struggling with their diseases and poverty, we, have, we don't have silver and gold, but that's okay. What we got, as little as it is, we're going to give it to you. In the name of Jesus, get up. Get up. Get back to your life. Get back to doing what God wants you to do. You don't have to stay there anymore if you don't want. That, it's just as simple as that. Letting your light shine for the glory of God. God's not asking you to do something you can't do. He's asking you to do what you're supposed to do, what you can do. Our problem is we'd rather sit on our hands and wait for somebody else to do it. God forbid. 
Let that not be said of us. I don't want to have this opportunity to do some tremendous ministry in the name of the Lord, and we're stuck in committee. Try to figure it out. Forget it, man. If a boat's sinking, you don't form a committee to figure out why it's sinking. You start bailing. You start plugging holes. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Let me get on. I'm sorry. Look, this is the point that Paul is trying to make to Titus, to those churches in Crete, and to us today. We have no right to sit in our smug, self-righteous Christianity and point our fingers in judgment toward anyone. If not for God's gracious salvation, we would still be lost in our rebellion and sin. We'd still be destined for death and eternal punishment. But God, love that phrase, say it with me, but God saved us. But God saved us. He planned it. We did nothing to deserve it. Everything we have, everything we are comes from God. It's all because of God's grace. And it's his gracious salvation that makes us ready to do the good works that he has planned in advance for us to do. God saves us by his grace. He gives us a new life by his grace. He blesses us by his grace. And now he calls us by his grace to be zealous for good works. He calls us to be a people who bring glory to him by living godly lives and doing good to others. And that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 2 says when it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, I want you to read this verse with me. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved us to make us ready. God saved us to make us ready. He has raised us up for such a time as this. We're not going to sit on our hands and wait for somebody else to do it. And we're not going to be ruled by ignorance and fear and contempt. We believe that God has raised us up for this moment to do the things that he has placed in our hands to do. To bring him glory, not for us. I don't care anything about it. Let them call us the crackhead church. I don't care. I don't care what they call us. As long as we keep pointing to the Lord as the source of this grace that we've received. It's about him, not about us. Man, I hope you're asking. I hope you're asking this question, and I'm bringing it to an end. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. I have gone way too long. I made a vow to Brian, oh, about two months ago, that I was going to try to limit the length of my sermons to about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And I probably have gone on, what, 45 now? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I think you've been with me the whole time, right? Okay. Well, what I hope is going on right now in your mind is this. I hope you're asking yourself a question, or maybe you're wanting to ask me the question, so Pastor Mark, where do I, get, where do I begin? Pastor Mark, I hear his call to let my light shine, and I know he saved me so that my good works will glorify him. Can you tell me where I'm supposed to start? Here's the answer to that question. Begin right where you are. Some of us are waiting till we get to Africa as missionaries to do good work for God. No. Sometimes all he wants you to do is walk across the room. I hope you heard that. 
Thank you. Sometimes it's, 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 sometimes God, all God wants you to do is to turn around and shake somebody's hand and tell them, you know what, I thought about you this week. You doing okay? Begin right where you are. Begin right where you are. Ask the Lord to show you what you can do to bring glory and honor to His name. Take a look around. Just take a look around and listen to what people are saying. Get out of yourself for just a moment and listen to what they have to say about what they're going through. Begin right where you are. Consider the needs of the people around you. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. As a matter of fact, that's a huge mark of maturity, to be able to put yourself in another person's shoes, try to understand where they're coming from and what it is they really need. Begin right where you are. I am convinced, and I wish I could convince you of it, and you're going to have to come to this conclusion yourself. The Bible says the, the steps of a righteous man are ordered of God. And I believe that with all my heart. And, and the more I've come to understand that God has saved me to make me ready to do good works, that he has already prepared in advance for me to do, help me understand, I don't go anywhere without knowing that God might be sending me there to meet someone's needs. It's crazy. I have a routine like probably most of you do. Every day I do this, go back, you know, wake up, go to work, usually come back home as soon as I can, or maybe I have a meeting. But I find, this is what happens, man. I find myself every once in a while, last minute, my wife will text me and say, hey, Mark, we need some milk. <sighs> Walmart. Hate Walmart. But the Lord speaks through my wife. So I go, <laughs> and I find myself at Walmart. And as I'm on my way to Walmart, I, I'm saying to myself, this is not random. I am going to Walmart, breaking out of my routine, and there's probably a reason behind it. You know what happened last week? She sent me to Walmart. And as I'm walking in the door of the Alabaster Walmart, someone at the far end of the building says, Hey, Pastor Mark! And I couldn't tell who it was, and I just waved at him. Was it one of you? I don't even know. Okay, it wasn't. And as I'm about to step through the door, somebody says, Hey, Pastor Mark! And I turned around, and it's one of my old friends named Robert. Do you remember Robert that used to come to celebrate recovery? He used to drive here. I can't remember his last name. Me and Robert... We had a great conversation about the Lord, and I'm convinced we really didn't need milk. Robert needed an encouraging word, and God cared enough about him to break me out of my routine to send me there. You see that? I am the Lord's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for me to do. That's not just true about me. God saved you too, right? And you? You are masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. I hope this changes the way you get up in the morning and go to work. 
I hope when you walk into that office or walk into that classroom or walk into that restaurant, you're thinking to yourself, this is no accident. The Lord has put me here to do something for the glory of his name. What it is, I don't know. Maybe it's just to be nice. Lord knows we need more nice people in the world. Or he might tap you on the shoulder and say, you need to pray for them. Well, that's a little awkward. Yeah, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you, and all I can do for you right now is pray. Well, pray your heart out for the glory of God. Do you see what I'm saying? Be ready. God has called us to be ready. We've got to get over our ignorance, over our fear. We've got to get past this contempt that seems to hamper so many in the kingdom of God. We have got to be ready to do what God has called us to do, and that's to be zealous for good works. This is what we've been saved for. The early church turned their world right side up. They took it over because they let their light shine. Frankly, I want to take this world over because I'm tired of the direction it's going in. And I'm tired of watching people throw their lives away. And I'm tired of watching families break up. And I'm tired of doing funerals for people who commit suicide or drug overdoses. I am tired of it. Do good works. That's why we're here. For his sake, not for ours. Our reputation means nothing, because we're nothing without him. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. You may be in this room, and you may be going through something that's way bigger than you are, and you're struggling today. You're struggling today. There's a mountain in front of you, and it's too tall to climb, too big to get around. Well, let me tell you, Christ Jesus is here to meet that need in your life. He is here to, to give you hope that will keep you going. He is here to give you a peace that passes all understanding. You can have peace in the midst of this storm. He is here to express his love to you. He wants you to know he loves you and he cares about you and he knows exactly what you're going through. And you can cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. You're not alone. Never will be. You're not alone. If you have a need in your life and it's just too much for you to handle, I'm asking you, in faith, in faith, get up out of that chair and come to this, come up front here so that someone can come alongside and pray with you. You don't have to carry that burden alone. Christ Jesus is here to give you rest, peace, and hope, joy in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this circumstance. He's here for you. He loves you.